Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. I am tackling a serious topic today with my guests that I think you and your kids need to be aware of, sex trafficking. It's when people illegally exploit others for sex. Sex trafficking can happen to any gender, and it happens in all communities here in Minnesota. It frequently happens every day, but it's not something that is talked about until we hear about it in the news. Last month, you may recall, 11 people were arrested in St. Paul after undercover law enforcement officers posed as minors and talked online with the suspects. Four survivors were found and given the help they need. This wasn't an isolated case. So today I have four guests in the studio with me to talk about sex trafficking. Yeah, I said four because it's complicated. And as I talk to them, I want to hear from you too. What questions do you have for our guests about sex trafficking? Are you a survivor of sex trafficking? What's your story? We'll take your phone calls in the second half hour of the show. And here are the numbers you can call 651 651- Two two seven six thousand. Again, you can call us at six five one two two seven six thousand or call eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. I'm going to bring in our guests one at a time because they each have a different perspective when it comes to sex trafficking. Uh, we begin with Rachel Pearson. Rachel is the commander of the Minnesota Human Trafficking Investigators Task Force with the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. Good morning to you, Rachel. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So exactly what are we talking about when we use the term sex trafficking? Because I, I, I don't know that I want to make sure everybody understands what, what, what it is. A lot of people wonder what that term means. Mm-hmm. So it's important to know sex trafficking is the exchange of something of value for a commercial sex act. So that means someone is buying a human for sex. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, end of July, a story uh, in in the news about a sex trafficking investigation by the BCA task force that that you work with. It led to several arrests, 11 people arrested, uh, charged. Tell me about that case. So the BCA partnered with several agencies in the state of Minnesota to do a two-day large operation. Um, We did a juvenile demand suppression, which that means we're looking for individuals who are trying to buy minors for sex and suppress what is occurring in Minnesota to take down that demand. We arrested 10 individuals during that operation. The second day, we did a recovery operation, and in those, we're looking to identify victims and survivors that need resources to be able to bring them in, make sure that they're getting medical attention, meeting them where they're at, and getting them connected with victim service providers. And we're looking to arrest and identify their traffickers during those operations, and we did arrest a trafficker that day. Mm. And um, this involved law enforcement officers posing uh, as as someone who they who they weren't, right, to try to create this conversation online. Can you tell us more about that? That is correct. Law enforcement officers are anywhere where the public can be. We have profiles set up to be able to identify people who are trying to buy a human or sell a human. But I'd also like to point out, we do do our large operations, but we do this on a daily basis as mm-hmm. well, too. So it's not something that we just do a few times a year. So wherever the public is at, law enforcement is at daily. So the, these arrests, it proves it's effective. It is very effective. We're able to identify people, again, who are trying to buy humans and sell humans and being able to suppress that and being able to hold a trafficker um, to justice and convict them for these acts. So I also read that more than, than 20,000 ads are posted online in Minnesota each month uh, to sell 
uh, victims for sex. Uh, Tell me about that. Where are these ads posted and what do they say? So in the last month, there was approximately 20,000 commercial sex ads that were posted on commercial sex websites. That number does not even take into account the sex ads that are on social media sites and also does not take into account when traffickers know sex buyers that they bring into these situations as well. And so this is not legal, right? These 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 ads or the, the websites, is that legal to do that? Commercial sex is not legal in the state of Minnesota. So we are looking to hold accountable the traffickers who are selling humans. So what typically happens to people after they are found, um, um, the, the survivors, uh, the, the victims, after an investigation leads to the arrest and the activity ends? What do we know about the people who are then uh, brought in and who need services? The victim survivors that law enforcement and our task force have contact with, we have strong partnerships with Safe Harbor and uh, victim service providers throughout the state of Minnesota that we connect to them with because we know it's very important to meet a victim survivor where they're at. Mm -hmm. And it's important for law enforcement to be able to do the investigation but make sure they're getting the services. There's lots of times when we're first in contact with a victim survivor, it's maybe they just need food. Mm. before we even look at anything else. And the people arrested, what were they charged with and what will happen to them now? It all depends on the situation. It could be solicitation of a minor for a commercial sex act. It could be for promotion of prostitution or trafficking. So once they go to court, they could be charged. Um, They may also face jail or prison time. And are any of those charges felonies? They are all felonies. Mm. Uh, you mentioned Safe Harbor. Safe Harbor. I, I want to move to you now, uh, uh, Caroline Palmer. Uh, you're the director of Safe Harbor with the Minnesota Department of Health. Safe Harbor provides support and services to victims, uh, survivors of human trafficking. Um, tell us more about what that means. Like, what can you do to help? Thank you so much, Angela, for having me on today. I'm really thrilled to talk about Safe Harbor. It's a statewide effort, and it involves many state agencies, also many uh, community-based services programs, and partners across the state. So the Minnesota Department of Health is where we have the Safe Harbor program cited, but we also work with the Department of Human Services, which has the child welfare response and a shelter and housing response. We work with the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension on the law enforcement response. And we're now working more with the Attorney General's office and also the Department of Labor as we branch into labor trafficking as well. And I understand that what Minnesota is doing, the way the state of Minnesota treats sex trafficking, um, is it, it's treated as a public health issue. And that's unique. It's different than the way other states do. So explain that to me. Yeah, absolutely. We were one of the few states in the country to really base our response in public health. And that means we're looking at prevention. We're looking at all the upstream social and cultural factors that come into play that create the risk of sex trafficking and human trafficking in general. We apply a lot of public health concepts like harm reduction in order to meet people where they're at and provide the services that they need. And we also look at this from a population harm and the different ways it affects everybody in our state. So I I just want to go back for a minute. I'm trying to understand or get a better sense of how this even begins. So I'm sure there's no typical scenario, but what tends to be the relationship between the perpetrator and the person who is being targeted for sex trafficking? 
It can be a variety of different uh, relationships, but most often they know each other in some way. There could be some sort of boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. There could be an interfamilial type of relationship. Um, in the family. It, exactly. Um, and then sometimes it may be somebody who's a stranger, but far more often our data shows us that it is somebody that's known. And what do you make of this uh, recent investigation that resulted in those 11 arrests in St. Paul? Was that a significant uh, case or does it it show you something that that is very, you know, routine or is it something different in that case? Sadly, this is something that happens quite often here in our state. And we really do appreciate our partnership with law enforcement and particularly the Human Trafficking Investigators Task Force at the BCA because they are so actively engaged in these types of operations. And I think it also helps the public uh, recognize that this is something that's very common. Um, And in terms of time and place, um, you know, where, like, where is this occurring or where are these uh, uh, relationships happening? Where is this activity happening? Is there any, you know, anything that's routine in that? Uh, Again, it can be in many different places. Um, As was mentioned earlier, online is a really big place and increasingly so. But it can also happen in the community. Um, It can happen through schools. Um, Sometimes uh, people are recruited to attend parties and things like that in the community. So it can really look very different. But I think online is really the place we're most focused on now. And the who? Who are the sex traffickers? Is there a profile of who this person is or could be? It, again, can really vary. Um, We don't uh, have like one single profile of what a trafficker looks like. Um, And sometimes, as we've seen in the news, it can be somebody who is very wealthy and has a lot of power in the community, or it can be somebody who doesn't have that kind of power. Um, So we don't have one profile. And what about the why? What what have we learned about why sex traffickers do this? Is it, um, do they make a lot of money? Uh, You mentioned the word power. What are they seeking? Power is a big part of that. Control over another person. Money is part of that, too. Um, So it's kind of all those combination of factors that uh, people feel like they benefit from. And so are there some myths that you find that are out there that you would want an opportunity to let people know about? Sure. I mean, there's a couple I would highlight. You know, first of all, um, human trafficking doesn't look like the sensationalized Hollywood movie stories that we see. You know, people aren't just abducted, you know, randomly off the street. You know, that may happen in the rare case. It really is through grooming and the development of relationship. Um, it can look very run of the mill <laughs> across the day. It's not something that has that Hollywood look to it. And also, while we um, see things, stories about the Super Bowl or other big events, um, yes, you may see a small spike sometimes, but really, this is a day to day thing. And these big events are not the only place where trafficking occurs. I'm glad you mentioned movies, because I feel like that is like a, a theme or a plot I've seen in many movies where someone is abducted, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you're saying that that is not the typical scenario at all. Correct. Right? Uh, and the the underlying issues uh, of sex trafficking that need to be addressed, you mentioned the word grooming, and I know we're going to talk more about that. What is grooming? Uh, grooming is where somebody develops a relationship with somebody else to create trust and secrecy. So they might offer them something that that person doesn't have. It could be love, it could be attention, it could be 
clothing. It could be something that that person really wants. And they kind of create this relationship where that person comes to depend on the other. It also really depends on secrecy, too. And, you know, saying we've got a secret that we're holding together. You're not going to go talk to somebody in your life who might be able to help you. I'm the one who can help you. And they also make sure that that person doesn't trust anybody else and only relies on that one person for everything they need. Mm. Um, I'm going to come back to both of you for more questions. If you're just joining us, uh, we're talking about sex trafficking and getting a a better understanding of what it involves and and how to to spot it and and what can be done after it is uh, determined. How is it investigated? What support services are available for survivors and victims? What questions do you have for our guests about sex trafficking? Are you a survivor yourself? What's your story? The phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or at 800-242-2828. And uh, we're going to talk now with our two additional guests uh, to learn more about this before we start bringing our listeners in. Um, we have Shannon Roan. Did I pronounce your last name right, Roan? Shannon Roan with us. And Shannon is the West Metro Regional Navigator with The Link. Uh, Navigator works to connect victims, survivors of sex trafficking with the services they need. And The Link is an organization in North Minneapolis that works with youth in particular and families to overcome the impact of poverty and social injustice. Good morning to you, Shannon. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, can we, you want to talk more about grooming? Sure. Like what is that look like? How how it occurs? Yeah, like uh, Caroline was saying, that's you know a very long going, usually long term relationship where someone is working to gain you know trust and respect and and give somebody a sense of you know belonging, a sense of relationship, that sense of trust. You know, uh, sometimes youth don't have anywhere to stay; they don't have food, so that's that basic need that they're lacking that that person is targeting. And then you know, as time goes on, it becomes a more close knit relationship where they're looking to that person to provide you know most of their basic needs and and love and you know a group belonging where they feel you know important. I feel like maybe a lot of people who are groomed tend to be young people, maybe teenagers. Uh, Is that the case? You know, we see a lot of that, too. But like we said, it really can happen to anybody. So, you know, you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, you know, basic needs, having shelter and and food and those basic needs are at the bottom. But all the way to the top, we're looking at, you know, a sense of, you know, it can be importance in a gang or that sense of belonging where you feel like you're part of something bigger than you, you know, family style um, type community. And so um, it really can happen to anybody. And so what do we know in particular about uh, teenagers? Um, I think I read someplace that um, at least 5,000 teenagers in Minnesota uh, have traded sex for something of value um, from a survey that was done. How does that how does that compare to other states? Um, I would say, you know, it's pretty comparable. That is the MSS data from 2019 that shows, um, you know, the realistic numbers of trafficking and exploitation happening of young people. But um, I think the biggest thing to focus on is that this happens everywhere. It's happening in smaller communities in our state. It's happening, you know, all over. Um, That data is probably still an underrepresentation. Youth could have not felt comfortable sharing that. They could have lied. You know, they could have not understood the question. Um, So, you know, we could be seeing higher numbers than that, you know, moving forward. Um, but I think as long as we just keep focusing on the fact that, you know, young people are, of course, vulnerable. They're they're teenagers. They're discovering who they are, that mm-hmm. sense of self, a sense of identity, um, you know, and it's a, a, an important critical time in their lives to make sure that they have the education and prevention tools to keep themselves safe. And in your experience, what have you seen um, that you, you would tell people are, are signs that someone might be an, an, an abuser, a manipulator? What are some personality traits or behaviors that would indicate someone um, 
is possibly, you know, trying to manipulate someone else. Sure. So, you know, we we tend to see, you know, young people come in and someone is controlling, you know, all of their phone communications. So if they're, you know, will only respond to us and when they get a ping or something on their phone, all of their communication is being controlled. If they don't have control of their, you know, documents, if they're missing basic identification, um, groomers and, and traffickers and exploiters tend to, you know, over time gain more and more control. And so they're trying to control where those people are going, who they're with, who they talk to, what your name is, how you dress. Um, and so over time that can, you know, these people have complete and total control over who they're exploiting. And what is happening online? Do, do young people you've talked with talk about, well, it started with an online conversation? Do you hear that? Yes. You know, since the pandemic, we're just seeing such an uptick of youth being online. And there's just so many, you know, chat rooms and apps and places youth can interact with people online now. So teaching them, you know, how to be safe, not to talk to strangers, things like that. Um, yeah, you know, we see youth who might see an ad and think it's, you know, for a modeling position. And then, you know, they show up there and it ends up being, you know, something way more exploitative. Um, so yeah, teaching youth to to be really vigilant online and make sure that they're they're not talking to random strangers is really important. And what signs might we see in uh, a person in our family or someone we're close to a change that we're noticing that w- might indicate that maybe they're being you know groomed for this? Sure, I would say you know hypervigilance, youth being really secretive. You know, if we tell people if youth starts coming to school with you know, an uptick of really expensive belongings, you know, mm-hmm. hair's done and nails done, um, really expensive stuff that you're kind of like, oh, you know, you're 13, 14. How are we? Just start asking some questions. Those could be potential red flags. And that's where kind of we love to step in and, you know, involve Safe Harbor and our team to kind of help lead those conversations. Uh, parents are finding themselves having to have a lot of tough conversations with young people now. How do you talk about sex trafficking to a young person? education prevention. So like I said, we really try to to do that as our biggest format of how we help kids stay safe. But just don't be afraid to have that conversation. Um, I serve as the point of contact and can give a ton of resources out for parents and we can provide, you know, specific training on those conversations and how to have them. But don't be afraid to have those conversations with the young people. Um, That's what keeps them safe and what's going to, you know, give them the skills to to manage the online world and the current world we live in. And so just be, you know, willing and and courageous to have that conversation and reach out to resources like us. So at the link, uh, a parent or do you guys offer classes or how do you get information out? We do. Yep. We can do, uh, you know, individual training with with parents caregivers. We can do group trainings online as a state. So we have a lot of resources to provide um, parents to kind of give them some tools and skills to have that conversation with their young person. What did you make when you saw the headline, uh, 11 people arrested after a a sex trafficking investigation in St. Paul? Uh, What did you think when you saw that? I'm I'm proud to partner with the BC on a lot of things. And, you know, this is not news to us. You know, we know that this is happening here. And, and, you know, it's great that those things occur and we're able to get those people apprehended. But, um, yeah, I mean, these are numbers that we're used to seeing and we know that it's happening here. So, you know, just confirms that these are this is happening in our community. Hmm. Uh, I want to go now uh, to uh, Chris Stark, who's also with us. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Uh, Let me tell you about Chris. Uh, Christine Stark is an award winning writer, researcher and sex trafficking survivor. Uh, Her second novel called Carnival Lights uh, won the Northeastern Minnesota Book Award for Fiction and was a finalist for the Minnesota Book Awards. Congratulations. Thank you. Her first novel, Nichols, A Tale of Dissociation, uh, was a Lambda Literary finalist. And Chris is also the the co-author of Garden of Truth, The Prostitution and Trafficking of Native Women in Minnesota. And she's a research fellow for the Villanova Law Institutes to address commercial sexual exploitation. 
exploitation. Uh, you're busy and a gifted <laughs> uh, researcher and writer. So I'm glad you, you are able to be with us. Um, what have you heard so far in this conversation that stands out uh, to you um, that's resonating with you? Is it hard to hear us talk about it uh, being a, a survivor of sex trafficking yourself? Yeah, I think it's been such a long time since I was, you know, harmed. I was uh, used in family trafficking, um, and and uh, there were other uh, members of this trafficking network. It was, and it was only certain members of my family. It wasn't the whole family who was perpetrating this. And it's been just such a long time that I think the pain for me more comes from the research that I've done and all the conversations that I've had with other survivors you know, who are still there, who are living in a homeless shelter and they're in their 60s. And, you know, they they tell me like, you know, up until their 40s or 50s, they were sex trafficked and that's all they ever knew. Their family used them in pornography when they were four years old. And that kicked off this whole cycle for them that lasted their entire life. And I'm a white and native, you know, heritage. And, there's a lot of that in the native community as well. We have grandmothers out on the streets who are being um, trafficked or or perhaps, you know, they don't have a, a pimp, but because they have um, so many barriers, so many added barriers uh, to doing what they want to do with their life. We hear stories about grandmothers in their 60s with grandchildren who are being brutally raped on the streets of Minneapolis. And so it was... Family, your own family members yeah. who 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 brought you into sex trafficking. How old were you? Uh, it started when I basically when I was born. I mean, I was a baby. Um, I was used in pornography and um, you know the grooming process that they're talking about. Uh, perpetrators really know what they're doing. This isn't an accident or just like a oops, I did this. You know, I think people would be very very shocked to find out how much how much awareness perpetrators have when they are committing these kinds of crimes. Like it's, it's not something like they're like, Oh geez, I just didn't realize I was doing that. And so basically like for people like me who were born into something like this, um, they basically teach you to survive being raped, you know, and sexually assaulted. Uh, and, and then you're someone they can use for a very long time. I have, friends who were used in family trafficking who didn't get out until their 30s or their 40s, who didn't get away from um, the situations that they were in. You know, And I was very fortunate that I got out when I was an older teenager. I, I left the state and was able to remove myself from that. But it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process of getting out often, and it's a lifelong process of healing and regathering yourself and learning who you are and what it is that you want to do in the world and what kind of gifts you have uh, to bring to the rest of the world. Because we're, we're people, we're human beings, you know, we're not, um, we're not objects or one dimensional. You're in your 50s now. Yeah. And um, so you have now used your story to be a writer and a researcher mm -hmm. to, to what is it that you are, are, are sharing and that you hope will be helpful? I think first and foremost, I want to use my voice and, and my writing skills to bring forward the voices of those who have been heard in these ways. I know so many people who have been heard in these ways over so many years. And secondly, I want to tell a good story. You know, that sounds 
strange, perhaps, but you know, you, I'm a writer. I want to tell a story. I, you know, I use those writing skills to tell a, a good story. But thirdly, I really want people who are not aware of these issues to read these books and have a deeper and more grounded understanding of what it is that so many of us uh, go through and suffer with for many years. So you have your life story, but you're also now a, a research fellow for Villanova's Law Institute to address commercial sexual exploitation. Uh, what are you doing as a researcher? Yeah, so I was part of the... the um, uh, Garden of Truth, which you mentioned, uh, that research uh, was um, groundbreaking. And we were able, there was a, a team of us, Native women and one woman from outstate who um, assisted us. And we were able to bring forward the voices of many Native women in the state of Minnesota who are being or were being um, trafficked or prostituted. And the idea is that we're opening a door for them to be heard because they can't be at the table right now. We're not speaking for them. No one is voiceless. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has gifts. Um, and if we're in a position where we can open doors for other people to walk through and make the kinds of changes that we want, I don't know what else is more fulfilling. We're uh, sitting um, with a law enforcement officer to people who, who work in organizations that provide support services. How did you deal with the, the emotional and psychological, um, you know, uh, abuse and the physical abuse that you endured for so many years? Yeah, I'd, I'd say for a good um, 10 to 12 years, I was a real mess, you know, and I was just I was barely surviving. I was very fortunate that I never ended up homeless, but I was, you know, right on the edge. And I um, was not living here. I did had very little support. I'm just very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to be alive, and I don't ever forget that. And there were a group of us um, in the in the area where I was located in Wisconsin, and we had all been through very similar kinds of things, and we supported each other and had each other's backs. There were no direct services. There was, you know, very little conversation about uh, these issues. So things have changed significantly in at least some ways in the past, you know, 30 or 40 years. And so that's really, you know, it's heartening to hear that um, there's direct services here in Minnesota and that there's these conversations that we're having right now and that the mm -hmm. BCA is doing these things. And you said moving out of state, that was a critical, yeah. uh, that played a critical role in, in getting you to a place that you were safe and you could heal. But for many people, that's not an option. They can't move. That's part of why they continue to be trapped. Yeah. And one of the things that we see a lot with um, women or girls is that they have children mm -hmm. and those children are, are exploited and they're threatened. Um, and so the women will not leave their children. And that, that's a major way that perpetrators keep women under their control or, or girls, young girls. We are talking about sex trafficking in Minnesota. What does it involve? How can it be prevented? Uh, how can you spot it? Uh, four guests in the studio who can uh, share a lot about this. And so we're taking your questions and uh, I want to hear your stories as well. What questions do you have for our guests about sex trafficking? And are you a survivor of sex trafficking? What is your story? You can give us a call at 651 227-6000 or call us at 800-242-2828. Uh, we're going to take a news break. But before then, I want to uh, bring in this written question that we have from a listener. Um, and I can ask each of you the, uh, this. Uh, Diane in St. Louis Park uh, wrote this question. How often is uh, the abuser uh, or is the abuse at home um, that leads to their vulnerable, 
vulnerability? How often is there abuse at home that leads to their vulnerability? So I, I, I'm wondering if, I guess the question maybe has to do if there's something going on in, in the home that makes then uh, maybe a young person then more vulnerable to be um, possibly a, a victim of this. Um, Rachel, what have you seen um, in your experience working with the BCA in this task force? If um, if there's something at home that then makes someone more you know, easily targeted? When we're doing our investigations, we have seen a history of our victim survivors having gone through abuse, emotional, physical, some type of abuse that was in the home that led them to where their trafficker was able to prey on that and be able to bring them into the situation and try to be the safe person for them, but they end up not being safe. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about you, uh, Carolyn? Yeah, <clears throat> Caroline, excuse, excuse me. me. Yeah, uh, certainly a, a big piece of this is sexual abuse in the home. I think you will mm-hmm. find if you're talking to survivors of sex trafficking, sexual abuse in the home um, plays a big role in that. And uh, Shannon, what would you say about that? Uh, another thing we see, we run a shelter for youth uh, that have experienced trafficking and exploitation um, in the southern part of the state. And so, you know, youth who, you know, just don't feel safe at home. So any of that kind of trauma, LGBTQ plus youth um, mm-hmm. who are often kicked out and have nowhere to go, you know, when that safe space of home goes away, that, that obviously creates a huge vulnerability. All right. And then, Chris, uh, in your case, it, it was happening, it was starting with family members. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, you could we compartmentalize these issues. And so one of the things that happens with sex trafficking is it's like, you know, on Mars somewhere. And it's really, um, unfortunately, central to our culture here and the institutions of the United States of America. Andrea Dworkin said, incest is boot camp for prostitution. Let's take a phone call uh, from Alexandria, uh, Minnesota. Uh, Bruce is on the phone. And Bruce, what did you want to ask or, or tell us as we talk about sex trafficking? Uh, Some six years ago, the Alexandria Area Community Foundation found a young woman who was working at the Heartland Girls Ranch in Benson uh, to be a speaker here. She had been trafficked herself for over six years in California and Texas, and she spoke to all four of our high school grade classes. She spoke to the Alexandria Police Department, to a gathering of... uh, our local nonprofit executive directors. Uh, amongst them were also business people, bankers, uh, a couple of city council members, a count, uh, I think a uh, uh, county commissioner or two. Uh, she spoke to parents in the evening at the high school. And all of this was a grand shock to our community as to how there's so much sex trafficking here in Alexandria because we're on Highway I-94. And Bruce, again, uh, you said it just came to a shock. You're still kind of shocked by that this is happening in such frequency and and, in communities that have felt safe to you. Yes, of course. Mm. All right, Bruce and Alexandria. Thank you, Bruce, for calling in. Um, And and Rachel, is that something that you often hear, that people just like, "I, I, 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 I didn't have the imagination to believe that this was happening? We get that a lot. We do trainings through the state of Minnesota. We partner with Safe Harbor and the link and we go out and we provide trainings to the public and to law enforcement. And we hear that all the time. And I think one thing to circle back for important for Minnesota to know, it's not just in the metro area. Sex trafficking is happening everywhere in the state of Minnesota. And it takes everyone working together to be able to combat this issue and make sure that everybody knows it's not okay to buy a human. 
even those words, it does does not sound right. Because uh, do you find that people are, are also shocked when they hear your story? Yeah, I think they're really shocked, and people have the you know certain stereotypical ideas about where this happens, how it happens, to whom it happens. And one of the things that I'm doing with my research is to ground it in history and ground it in institutions. And Christopher Columbus, according to his own journals, he and his men were trafficking indigenous girls at the ages of nine and 10 years old when they landed in what we now call the Caribbean. And, you know, speaking to your point, uh, Rachel, in the early 1900s, there was a brothel owned by a white man who lived in Bemidji, just on the other edge of the Red Lake Reservation way up there. And so this is something that was brought over. It was, you know, it's 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 central to colonialism, absolutely central to colonialism. In La Crosse, Wisconsin, we have uh, Dawn on the phone. Uh, Dawn, thank you for waiting. Thank you for calling in. What do you want to ask or tell us about sex trafficking? Um, yeah, I was just wondering um, if they had any suggestions about certain apps or whatever to monitor um, kids when they're online. I have three girls, and um, there I have come up upon a situation where one of them had gotten into the website omegle.com. What, and what's the website again? What is the website? Omegle. Omegle. Okay. Go ahead. Yep. I'm sorry. And it basically connects you with a random stranger from anywhere in the world, and she immediately erased everything, and I went back in and showed, told her to show me where she was, and got on it, and a guy, it was not a boy, popped up on there, and the first question out of his mouth was, how old are you? Mm-hmm. And my stomach, I was sick. I was sick to my stomach. <laughs> how old is your daughter? Uh, she's almost 13. Okay. Um, and so your question is, you, you want to know maybe more about this Omegle website and, and what you can that, do? Yeah, and monitoring webs or like apps, what's the best, you know, ones. Or I've had multiple conversations with them about, you know, website safety and stuff. But I think as they get, you know, to be teenagers and want to push the boundaries and such that they just don't realize what they're kind of getting into. Yeah, it's hard. As a parent, it's hard. Okay, I, I'm going to start here uh, with Rachel uh, at the, the BCA. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Omegle? Yes, familiar with that um, in a lot of our child exploitation cases is where you see that website used. Um, just to put it out there, any website, any app that youth are on and adults are on can be used for sex trafficking. We saw an increase on dating apps and social media sites for traffickers to recruit their victim survivors. Mm. And so, um, first of all, how is Omega spelled? Um, this was new to me. I, I it, it looks like it might be O-M-E-G-L-E. That sounds correct. That sounds correct. So uh, this mother uh, with a 12-year-old, almost 13-year-old daughter, uh, she wants to know what can she do to monitor what her, her children are doing, what her daughter is doing, and, um, you know, what, what, what can she do? The big thing that we suggest as law enforcement, I can't point you to one specific monitoring site, but you can go online and you can look through your phone device, whatever your operating system is. And there are a lot of apps that are developed to help a parent be able to let their child still be a child and a youth and be able to connect with their friends. But you can use these different apps on your um, device to be able to monitor what's happening to make sure you can try to keep them safer so an unknown person isn't reaching out and trying to exploit your child. Help me understand what the conversation might be if I am some type of um, a predator or perpetrator. I don't know what word to use, but I'm looking for some 
to to create uh, to groom someone, a victim. What would this conversation even be like between someone and and then this child? In our investigations and in our undercover operations that we participate in, they'll start to ask kind of questions like, "What do your parents do? Do you have friends? What are you doing today?" Just to try to get. A gauge of where that youth is at. If they're connected in sports, they may move on to the next uh, youth. Or if the parent is never there, or if they've experienced some type of trauma, they'll start asking questions. And youth share a lot because they want to talk about themselves. Or yeah, that is correct. Attention. Yep. They want to talk. They want to be able to share. They want to get to know you. They're learning themselves as well. So that gives the groomer or the trafficker the area to be able to ask those questions and learn more about them and learn how to exploit them. So why would a child seek out this or a teenager? Uh, why would a child seek out this website? There's so many websites that are out there. They're just hopping on thinking their friends were there where they were talking. Um, maybe they just learned about it because it popped up and it was something that someone talked about at school. So it may not be that they're Sounds specifically right. seeking it out. Right. Uh, Caroline, uh, Shannon, uh, What do you want to say about what we heard in this uh, mother who called concerned about her soon to be 13 year old daughter? Yeah, absolutely. It's great. She's having conversations. And um, but I also would really want to say we want to see more opportunities for youth to have these conversations in their schools and in their community. We support a curriculum through the Minnesota Department of Health called Not a Number. It's created by Love 146, which is a international organization. And it meets youth where they're at. It talks about websites. It talks about social media. It talks about what they run into the community every day. And so we can provide more information about that curriculum. Mm. And uh, Shannon, what did you hear in this mom story? I, I feel for her. Yeah, echoing what everybody's saying, I really think that that prevention and education lens, um, you know, in schools and, you know, from a health lens where youth can learn about trafficking exploitation. And we're having the conversation in schools, just like a health class. And we're, you know, continue to have those conversations with your kids, try to stay up to date. I mean, like Rachel said, really any app, you know, where kids can be, you know, on a chat room or talk to people is is a potential, you know, option. So just stay up to date with your kids. Ask them what they're doing. Ask them who they're talking to. Ask them what they're on and just try to stay up to date because it does change often. And Rachel, do police find that? So it starts with this, you know, okay, it's someone I'm just talking to. And then the conversation goes to let's meet. Does that happen? That is correct. Uh, Most of those conversations lead to wanting to meet up so they can meet in person and then be able to assess where are they at right now with that victim survivor? Are they able to exploit them further? Are they going to be in a relationship and continue to try to groom them till they can traffic them? And Chris, anything that you want to add, uh, what you hear this mom express and, and the thought that this child has no idea what they're getting into? Yeah, I, not a lot. Just that it's so terrifying to think of the exploitation, how it's ramped up for children. Mm. Let's take another phone call. Uh, more questions and stories as we talk about sex trafficking in Minnesota. In Minneapolis, Bonnie's on the phone. Hi, Bonnie. What do you want to tell us or ask? My question is, um, who are the clients and how do we stop that kind of demand for this um, for the sex traffickers to become so lucrative with this kind of business? Right, because there are... The public aware, yeah, to don't don't access this, right. don't be part of it. Um, Bonnie wants to know um, who who is interested in, in uh, taking advantage of these uh, of of these people. What do we know about the the client? Or what would the word would you use, Rachel? What does law enforcement use? The sex buyer, sex buyers. That's what I need. The language. What do we know about sex buyers? Who are they? 
I think as Caroline had mentioned before, when we were talking about um, the difference of who's involved in this, it is every demographic is what we see in our investigations. It does not just be one person um, or one gender or one race. It is all demographics that are involved in buying sex. And that's what you all are all seeing. Chris, anything you, you see as well? I, I think what Rachel said is important, but it has to be couched in um, that there's clear majorities of um, groups of people who buy others and white professional men um, in the United States um, are one of those uh, primary groups. A study that came out of the United Kingdom found that white professional men were the main purchasers of people for sex, and they included police officers, social workers, and teachers. So studies have been conducted, and that is research that is happening. Yeah, there's actually been quite a few studies done on demand, too, which people can Google and and read about. And one of the interesting things with that is that a lot of these men say, well, if you put me on a billboard or you told my family or my work, I would quit. I would stop this behavior. So who has the choice in the situation? They do. Another phone call, uh, this one coming from North Dakota in West Fargo. Barry's on the phone. Good morning, Barry. What do you want to ask or share as we talk about sex trafficking? Hi. Uh, yeah, I was just calling. This is kind of a personal story. It happened to our family. My stepdaughter uh, ran away from home uh, when she was 16. And this was probably back in 2005 or 2006. And we hadn't heard from her for months and months and uh, we found out she was she was in San Diego, and uh, actually she was caught up in the trafficking down there. Uh, she was used by a, a guy down there. Uh, you know, she was trafficked. Uh, she was down there for probably over a year. She came back when she came back. She was pregnant, and uh, she has a son now. He's sixteen years old. He's half white and half black, but. Uh, she had a, you know, she opened up to us uh, what happened to her down there. Uh, and uh, she came back with a tattoo on her shoulder. And uh, uh, she had, you know, it took a while for her to get over this and our family to get over this. But she's recovering now. She does talks in North Dakota about sex trafficking and stuff like that. But just to let you know, it, it does happen, and it, it was uh, hard on our family, but uh, we got through it. So, how is your stepdaughter doing today? How is she? Uh, she's doing really well. She's I think she's like thirty six now. She lives in Bismarck. She's married. Of course, she has she has one daughter from her marriage, but the son is uh, sixteen years old now, and he's just a nice nice guy. But he came from. Came back from uh, San Diego. Uh, she was pregnant with him, and he uh, had a little bit of trouble, kind of breaking the ties with the, the father of the of, of uh, mm-hmm. Isaiah. But he's doing well now. And so, Barry, you said she talks now to to groups about what she went through. Um, and do you are are you grateful to, to that she's able to talk about it and share it with other people because maybe that would prevent more of it from happening. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually. Kind of, I'm proud of her for being able to do that now. And like I say, she's done that in North Dakota and different cities in North Dakota now. But it's helped her. Uh, I think it's helped her deal with it. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, she's back going to. College. 
Thank you, Barry. Uh, I appreciate Barry calling in from West Fargo uh, in North Dakota. Uh, the I want to go back to that original case that we were talking about that happened last month uh, in St. Paul. What what do we know about uh, the the four uh, survivors found in that and 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 how they can be helped now? And then what have you seen in your experience, Rachel, in law enforcement um, survivors what they're able to do in terms of healing and recovery? And I think to circle back to that phone call that happened, I think it's so important that the victim survivors are helping in this fight. It is so important mm-hmm. that the victim service providers are there to support them and that the victim sur- survivors are going out and talking because it takes all of us from the law enforcement to the victim service provider and the victim survivor to be able to get this information out, be educational and make sure that people aren't buying humans. I just want to put that out there that that's so important. And I think to go back, there's not a lot of details that we can provide on the victims that we did recover. But I think it's important to know that victim services were provided to each and every one of them as we recovered them that day. And they walk alongside them and meet them where they're at. They help with our investigations. They help be able to go out and educate and be able to provide this support to Minnesota as well. So I just think it's very important. And Chris, we just have uh, um, about 30 seconds left here. How important is it for survivors of sex trafficking like you to be willing to tell the story? Yeah, it's it's crucial because uh, we have to put a face to it and we have to humanize uh, you know, and, and counteract the the stereotypes that have been put out about people like us for such a long time. And, you know, healing is possible. The main, the majority of my healing has been through the Native community and through ceremonies, and I'm just really grateful for that. So there's always hope uh, for healing and for a better life. Thank you. I love hearing that healing is possible. I, I want to uh, thank our listeners who called in, and I want to thank our four guests, um, all of you doing important work. And uh, thank you for your time this morning. We've been talking with uh, Shannon Roan, the West Metro Regional Navigator with The Link, and uh, the a navigator, the work that you are doing. Uh, you're working with uh, connecting victim survivors of sex trafficking with the services they need. Also talking with Caroline Palmer, the director of Safe Harbor, which is within the Department of uh, Health here in Minnesota, providing support services to victim survivors of human trafficking as well. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Caroline. Also, uh, Commander Rachel Pearson, commander of the Minnesota Human Trafficking Investigators Task Force with the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, the BCA. Thank you, Rachel. Good to meet you. And thank you to uh, Chris Stark an award-winning writer, researcher, and a sex trafficking survivor. Thank you, Chris, for sharing your story. This conversation today was produced by Danelle Cloutier. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.